AT&T is spinning off Warner Media just three years after buying it. We look at why the deal never made sense from the start and if the combination with Discovery is a better idea. This week's edition of our Inside the Stream podcast. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and Colin Dixon from Endscreen Media joins me. Quite a week here we've got going, Colin, right? It has been a week indeed. <laughs> Tons of news. I think we're going to talk about one of the big stories this week, but we also wanted to touch on a couple of other things that hit our radar uh, during the week. So, uh, sort of obliquely related to our main story, but there was an, an announcement by AT&T about HBO Max and the ad-supported version, right? Right. I'm going to talk about that. And, of course, our main story this week is the AT&T spinoff of Warner Media. We want to share a few thoughts on that. And uh, to your point, though, a couple of other items that caught our attention this week. First is that HBO Max with ads was officially announced, and that had been speculated about for a while. And the price point is indeed going to be ten dollars. Excuse me, ten dollars per month. That's five dollars per month less than the current ad-free version of HBO Max's. And I have to say, Colin, when I look at the press release, I, I didn't watch the Warner Media upfront yesterday, so I don't know if they shared any more details, but just looking at the press release, um, it feels like the HBO Max with ads viewer experience is going to be very strong. Um, the only three ads that they announced so far are a brand block, which is you know, kind of, it looks like a presented by message at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the show, pause ads, which of course are not, not interruptive and what they're calling branded discovery, which sounds like display ads that surround the content during the discovery and recommendation process. So, uh, they said that it was going to be the lightest ad load in the industry. And it seems like that's what it's going to be. And the question that I have is, is it going to be so light that people who are paying 15 a month may quickly realize I could save $5 just by dropping down to the ad-supported version, and it's barely going to impact me. Yeah, and in fact, I think I think it's true to say that the movies, the, the premiere release movies, aren't going to be included in this right. lower tier. But I've got to tell you, Will, I'm not much interested in those movies, <laughs> basically. So, mm-hmm. as you say, this, this light ad load may get me to just lighten my bill a little bit, I think. Yeah, that's the cannibalization issue. The flip side and the positive story here is that it allows for people who don't want to spend $15 a month, who haven't been subscribers, to come in at $10 a month, um, which is a you know pretty competitive price point as in the industry. It's, it's certainly higher than other ad-supported services and even higher than some ad-free services like a Disney Plus. Uh, but for everything that HBO Max has to offer, I think it's $10 is probably a pretty good price point, especially if it's not very intrusive, the ads. Yeah, I think so, absolutely. The other big story that we wanted to mention, at least, was this open rumor that Amazon is interested in purchasing MGM. Now, 
MGM, I think, has been on the sale block for a, a while. Certainly, they were trying to sell it last year uh, at a valuation of, I think, about $5.5 billion. The whisper number that Amazon is being uh, dogged after, I think, by MGM, I think, is $9 billion. That's what they're talking about there. Uh, and uh, I don't know about the fit, though. Uh, what they get is they will get a massive film library and TV library. They get uh, a production team. They get half ownership of the Bond franchise, which is probably the most valuable thing that they have right now. And uh, it really is a massive library, though, I will say. And it does bring, I suppose, a new business to Amazon, which is licensing those assets to other media outlets. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how much of a great fit it is for Amazon if they do decide to buy MGM, particularly when you bear in mind, Will, the rumored number, number is $9 billion and they spent $11 billion in total on content for Prime Video last year. So this would be a very, very big purchase for something that isn't really central, I think, to Amazon's, Amazon's business. Not that they aren't averse to spending a lot of money. They did spend $14.5 billion for Whole Foods, but Whole Foods was pretty central to the whole retail focus of the company. And I don't know, this seems like a bit of a stretch to me. What do you think? Well, it all comes down to does their research support the idea that the MGM library will drive prime acquisition and retention? Right. And I'm guessing they've studied that, you know, six ways to Sunday. And at least if you believe the rumors that they're going forward, have demonstrated that it would support retention and, and acquisition because that's really what Prime Video is all about. It sure is. And actually, they Bezos gave a little bit of information there. They said of the 200 million Prime members around the world, 175 million have, quote, watched a video inside of Prime Video. That doesn't sound to me like regular users. Uh, it's probably a lot. Monthly users is probably a much lower number, maybe less than 100 million. But that's still a lot of people apparently are finding some value in Prime Video. Definitely. Um, so if that deal goes through, we'll probably come back to it. I think we'll come back to HBO Max with ads also once it launches and we can actually see what the user experience is like. Yep. But our main story this week, Colin, as we said at the beginning, is the AT&T spinoff of Warner Media. And it certainly got a ton of attention in the industry this week. And you and I were very much in agreement if we dial the clock back four and a half years to when this deal was first announced that we didn't think it made sense then. And we have not seen any evidence that it's made any more sense along the way in the time that AT&T has actually owned Warner Media. So it's probably in a, in a kind of a net net view, it's probably the right move that AT&T decided to spin off Warner Media. But it does, I think, raise, you know, real questions about how something like this happens in the first place. And you and I were talking before the podcast began, and we were just saying that, you know, a deal of this level has to pass through so many different hurdles in order for it to be approved. Internally, there has to be, you know, layers of justification. And yet, when the press release 
announcing the deal came out, I remember being struck by how jargon-filled it was, how much just sort of corporate gobbledygook was in there that was very was was very sort of ambiguous about what the actual benefits of the deal were were going to be. And now that the company is being spun off, I, I think it's a tacit admission that the benefits, whatever it was that AT&T envisioned, which were not well articulated by any stretch, but whatever those benefits were, were not realized. And that, I think, is mainly because their belief that distribution and content belong together is a defunct approach. And it really only applied at a time when distributors had a lot of control over what content could be distributed. So if you think back to the cable TV days, when a cable TV provider could literally decide what TV networks were going to be carried and what were going to be brought into, the, which ones were going to be brought into the home, that was a way of creating instant value for those TV networks. But in the internet and broadband and streaming and connected TV era, where content can be accessed by anybody, there's really no additional value that a distributor can bring by actually owning the content company as opposed to just you know, including them or making access to them you know, wide open. And that's part of obviously what net neutrality contemplates. So the whole basis of the deal seemed flawed from the beginning and um, you know the fact that it's now being spun off I suppose ultimately is not that big a surprise. I agree and I don't know if you remember they they sat side by side with Jeff Bukes uh, who was head of Time Warner at the time and I remember listening to what he had to say he talked about vertical integration and the opportunities there, but it really didn't sound like he believed it. <laughs> he just really didn't. And I think a year later, he actually came out and said the whole vertical in integration concept is, quote, suspect. So I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what he was thinking and what they were thinking. But your point about groupthink, I think, is very, very true that there's a lot of groupthink going on. But I don't know if our readers remember, how, uh, listeners rather remember how controversial that deal was at the time. It was challenged by, I think, the Trump administration. Um, uh, there, there, I think the Trump administration was really concerned about CNN, which they hated and continue to hate. Um, but ultimately, the deal did get approved. And I think you and I both agreed that there was no reason to not allow the deal, particularly bearing in mind that we that they approved NBCU NBCU's purchase by Comcast, which is a very similar type of deal, but which actually was a much more successful deal. Although I have to say, of course, Comcast had a much bigger footprint in the media world with the pay TV system uh, than did AT and T when they purchased uh, when they purchased Warner Media and Directv at the time, but. There really wasn't, I, we really didn't see what the justification was there. And 
as as it turns out, well, here we go. We've unwrapped the deal. We're unwrapping the deal uh, and doing something else. And they're going back. AT and T's going all the way back to yep. the basics again, aren't they? Yeah, and and I, I guess uh, you know a couple of thoughts in response to what you just said. You know, when you talk about Time Warner's former CEO Jeff Bucus, I, I think the main thing that he was thinking was we're going to get $107 a share or, or, you know, whatever the exact number was at the time. Oh, yeah. Which was a fantastic exit for Time Warner at that point. They'd already spun off a bunch of their other operations, Time Warner Cable, AOL, etc. He got that $100-plus billion basically for the cable networks and the studio and HBO. Uh, That was a great deal. And... You know, but as you said, he wasn't a very convincing messenger that the deal made sense. Um, I think it was really driven by AT&T believing that it made some sense, which, of course, as we know, it didn't. And, um, you know, the thing is that what's now pointed to the investment needed for 5G, the investment needed to be competitive in streaming, all of that was well understood and well known several years ago when the deal was being hashed out. It's not like something surprising happened. It's not like, oh my God, you know, 5G, where did that come from? Or, wow, we're going to have to create a whole bunch of streaming original content to compete. Where did that come from? I mean, all of that was completely well known and understood. So uh, the main thing I think that happened here is that there were no tangible benefits of the deal. AT&T failed to create new value by owning Warner Media. Therefore, the stock price languished. Therefore, and they took on a mountain of debt to get the deal done. And they were basically, you know, being told by investors that they were pursuing an, a non-viable strategy. And so rather than see the value diminished ever further due to underinvestment in both these areas, they decided to pull the ripcord. And it's, and it's actually no surprise, I think, when you look back and, realize, and see that the government lost its case, the, the government regulators that were trying to block the deal on anti-competitive grounds, they lost the case because there was no case to be made because, because the acquisition did not make AT&T stronger or more competitive in reality. And the government could not make that case because there wasn't a case to be made. And and here we are three years later, and I think basically the truth is now, you know, evident for all to see. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember back then I tried to put myself in their place and I tried to understand the vertical integration argument uh, as best I could to see if I felt like it really held water. And I think the idea, both with the DirecTV purchase and with the Time Warner purchase, was that they saw this as, you know, one of their biggest competitive threats they saw at the time was a company like Comcast, which had triple play services, pay TV, um, broadband and phone service which they were going head to head with in many of their core markets, they, they lacked the video component. Uh, I think this was a lot also behind Verizon 
Verizon's purchase of all of the media properties that it picked up, which it it also has announced it's spinning out to Apollo, um, to uh, to this company called Apollo. And so the argument there was, well, you need video because what you need to be able to do, video is a great anchor for the other services. So I think that's why AT&T purchased DirecTV because DirecTV, unlike Uverse, DirecTV had a national footprint and they could use it in every market as, uh, as that video anchor. And Time Warner allowed them to create what they thought was a creative set of, bundle of bundles of content that they could use uh, in their other properties in broadband and in wireless. Unfortunately, what they discovered along the way was that nobody else in the content community wanted to go along with them in their creative bundles. So they really only could use Time Warner uh, the Warner Media stuff that they'd picked up in those creative bundles, particularly of, of of channels of television in their wireless properties. So that turned out to be a huge bust. Uh, and so the the whole idea of using this as a backstop against uh, triple play operators like Comcast in their core markets it began to evaporate as people began to be less interested in the big bundle and to be much more interested in SVOD services. And, and that's still unraveling even as we speak. I think um, Leichman said that, uh, Bruce, Bruce Leichman said that pay television operators lost 1.9 million subscribers again in the first quarter of 2021. So that's continuing to decline. So I think, you know, a lot, I can understand why they convinced themselves that this would work. But the truth is that even when, as they purchased, the writing was on the wall. The direction was pretty clear the market was taking and that purchasing these were was a backward-looking strategy and they really didn't put thought into where things were going to go. And uh, hey, here we are. They they wanted they they realised finally now uh, the mistake that they made, and they need to needed to back out. So um, yeah, as you say, this backward looking strategy that they had taken on was just not working out for them. So yeah, big a big step back, I think. So now let's turn attention to the new company that's going to be created, and let's spend a few minutes discussing what we think its chances are. So this is now going to be the new, actually they're going to have a new name for it apparently. It's not going to be named either Discovery or Warner Media, which is already a little bit of a flashing red sign that a new brand is going to be introduced. Um, but be that as it may, this is a company that's going to have all of the Warner Media assets coupled with all these Discovery assets, which are primarily unscripted shows. That's what Discovery is known for. Uh, it has the big Eurosport operation, of course, in Europe as well. Um, but I think what we're going to see is some type of a Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN Plus type bundle coming to market from Discovery. That, I would guess, is going to be the game plan. And the question is, you know, is there enough overlap in those audiences 
to buy into that type of a bundle. And and I I am I, I think the Warner Media assets are certainly in better hands with Discovery, but I, I'm not completely convinced that there's such a big market that wants that particular type of bundle. I think I agree. I think there is zero chance that they're going to combine the two two services. Right. That does not make sense. Right. These are very different audiences. Both services approved have proved that, that they've found substantial audiences separately. So there is little impetus for them to actually bring the two together under one roof. A bundle is really actually really dependent on the overlap between those audiences. Yeah. You you need to be really careful here because you don't want to offer a bundle to customers that have have already subscribed to both services separately anyway and uh, lose money there the only reason to in, in, uh, to bring a bundle in is to bring in new customers right new customers who wouldn't wouldn't have subscribed to the other service were it not for the fact that you have a bundle price yeah. and it's not clear what the overlap in the audiences is at all so We'll, you know, we'll have to see. I, David das, Zaslav, he's he's kind of a bullion about the opportunity. He was talking about the potential for 400 million subscribers worldwide. He said, very strangely, he said, well, that there are 100 million. They're already, he said, we're already a quarter of the way there, which means they have 100 million subscribers. I, I couldn't get there. I couldn't get to 100 million with what, with, you know, HBO Max, and um, mm -hmm. and Discovery Plus gets you to about I think thirty or thirty two million or something like that. Even if you include all of the HBO subscribers in the US, that still only gets who have acts who have the right to get to HBO Max. Um, that only gets you to fifty seven million. I think I, I couldn't get to a hundred million with the number. That's an enormous four hundred million is an enormous number. And like you, I'm, I'm wondering, okay, can they get there? I'm not sure. It's not a clear cut to me as some of the other offerings that are out there. So I don't know. I don't know if they can get yeah. there. Yeah, we'll wait and see. As always, the devil is in the details with these deals. It's one thing to be, as you say, ebullient on announcement day and um, you know, talk about what the opportunity is, but ultimately you have to execute, you have to prove it in. And I think that's really the moral of the AT&T Time Warner story is that uh, they were not able to execute because there was no real there there. And now we're gonna find out how much there there uh, is with Discovery plus Warner Media. And it's, it's, I think it's gonna be really interesting to, to see how it goes. I, I do too, and that one one thing I will say, Will, is that this does make the joint company, uh, well, obviously much bigger in traditional pay TV, which probably strengthens the hand of Discovery and, and, and that team in the negotiations with pay TV operators for license, license rates. But again, as we just talked about with AT&T, who purchased on a backward-looking <laughs> backward strategy, if that, the, that's a very backward-looking strategy. Yeah, yeah. That would obviously be a benefit, but certainly doesn't help them going forward, I think. So big questions there about the joint company, I think. 
Yeah, and it's going to take a year to get this deal closed as well. So <laughs> no doubt by a year from now, we'll be dealing with a very different landscape than we're dealing with today. Yeah, we certainly will. If they could get it done immediately, I don't know, maybe maybe that would be something. But goodness knows where we'll be a year from today. All right. Well, I think we're about out of time for today. So we, we know one story that we can keep looking at, at least for <laughs> as far as the eye can see. Yeah, for us, it's a great deal, right? <laughs> we've got, we got, it's, we can talk about this for the next year. So that's certainly to absolutely. be great risk for the mill for us. Yeah. All right, Colin, good chatting. And thanks everyone for listening in on this week's edition of our Inside the Stream podcast. And we'll see you all again next week. 